That is what we desire, Lord, that all of our days would be so oriented, so fixed, so aligned to your purposes that they would truly bring glory to your name. That whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. That our life, our words, our motives, our heart, our satisfactions, our everything in life would be directed and focused on the goal. The goal of pleasing you, of loving you, serving you, and showing you to others. We would be a reflection of your son, Jesus Christ, to the world. They would hear that from our lips, that they would see that from our lives. They would notice it in our conversations, in our relationships. They would see it in our conduct. Understand it through our submission. Recognize it in our confidence in the midst of suffering. That in every way, Jesus Christ would be praised through our lives. Lord, we know we're so far away from that goal. We know we need your help, your Holy Spirit, to strengthen us for that task. So we pray that we would be strengthened with might through your Holy Spirit, that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith, that we would come to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge, the width and length and breadth and height of your love, and that we might be filled with the fullness of God to the glory of God the Father. So Lord, this morning as we look into your word, may those truths touch our inner being. May they resonate within our soul. May our hearts and minds be changed in a, and conformed to the image of Christ. And may our life show the, the new affections, the new truths that we embrace. May it show through in how we live and the reasons and the purpose for which we go about our day by day. So Lord, this morning as we look into your word, may we not be hearers of the word only, but doers. We pray in your name, amen. Just by way of reminder, I wanna encourage you to pray for Pastor David. You're, you're gone next week, right? Next Sunday. Oh, you'll be here in the morning, but leaving in the afternoon, okay. He's, uh, he's going to be um, teaching at a missions conference. Be praying for him, that God would use him mightily in that. And uh, what a great opportunity that is as he travels. Pray for safety and traveling mercies. Uh, be, pray with, for uh, Alex and I as we uh, prepare. We've got one more full week to get ready. Uh, we've got 20 lessons that we're trying to put together, and we're kind of splitting it between the two of us. So pray that God will help us. We've got a lot, of, a lot of work to do this week in getting ready. And, uh, and, and if you would like to not only pray for us, but to support us through uh, your giving, we certainly could enjoy or use your help in, in getting there. Thank you in advance for, uh, for your contribution. Uh, the men who come to the conference, uh, if they can get there, the, the, the module is paid for them so they can come and they can be refreshed through the word, encouraged, and then they can take that back to their congregations. These are already Christian leaders and pastors there in Russia. So be praying for them as well, the reception of the word and the, the way that God will use it in their life to strengthen their own lives as they seek to encourage and strengthen others. 
Well, we are in a, our last and final section of 1 Peter, chapter 4 and chapter 5. Uh, I'm entitling this, Strengthened by Glory. We get that anthem from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 14. Really, I think is the crescendo, really, of, of this final section. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because, and here it is, the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. As we move through this final section, we see that it is the presence of God, the glory of God, which we have called his presence, that comes to us, especially when things are hard, comes to us especially when suffering is happening, and his spirit rests on us and strengthens us for the task, for the challenges and difficulties and trials that you're going through. In that way, you are strengthened by the glory of God, his presence in your life. His strength in your life is showing up through the midst of very hard things. One of my favorite places on the earth is the Sequoia National Park. That's why I chose uh, that picture that you see. Uh, that Sequoia National Park, those, those massive trees, almost too hard to describe. I mean, I think we had, I think at one point we had like 12 people hand in hand trying to go around the circumference of that tree. They're massive. But you wouldn't expect that a tree that size would have a pine cone or a seed. I'll show you this next picture. That would actually be dwarfed by the seeds or the pine cones of the much smaller trees around it. It is, in a way, kind of similar to the Christian life. As Christ would say, those who would desire to be great in God's kingdom must be the least of all. In a similar way, Sequoia, though it has the, the smallest, I think, of, the, of that kind of, of tree, it, it grows into the largest of them all. And that tree, those seeds, those pine cones will only open in the midst of hard things. Only when a fire comes through and begins to ignite all the underbrush and, and all the trees around it, only then will that little pine cone open up and that seed then will be able to take root and begin to create another tree. Life through suffering. That's what we're going to be talking about through chapter 4 and chapter 5, this continuing theme of suffering. Suffering that comes to us in many different shapes and sizes that we saw in chapter 1. This, the various and multifaceted, custom-designed sufferings and trials that God brings to your front door to help you be more like Jesus. That's the theme that will continue as we work our, through, our way through chapter 4 and chapter 5. But this spirit of God, the presence of God in your life, was almost unimaginable to the Jewish audience who may have been listening or reading these words. Because in their minds, 
the Spirit of God, the presence of God would only come to one person once a year as the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies behind the veil reserved for that one man set apart from the people to go into this presence. But those of us who by faith come to believe in Jesus for forgiveness of sins, those who have bowed the knee before God have asked for forgiveness, for cleansing that only he can give, who trust him as the only means of salvation, who have made him the Lord of their life, who said, you are master, you are king, you are the authority over me. For those who come to him by faith, not only have the promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit that comes upon every believer, but this promise, the promise of the presence of God coming upon them as we see the spirit of glory and of God resting on you, especially in the midst of suffering. We pick up that theme in chapter four, verse one. I would encourage you to turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible of your own, there's a pew Bible there, page 1016. First Peter, chapter four, verse one. Here's what it says. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now we have been coming back to this theme over and over and over again. We have seen Christ's suffering at the forefront of every new command, every new section that we have come to in chapter, at the end of chapter two and the end of chapter three. Because we've said that suffering is the canvas on which the glory of God in the gospel is put on display. Everything in this life, every confirmation of the actual work of God in your life is confirmed by your willingness to walk in Christ's steps. Meaning, to be willing to embrace suffering for the sake of the glory of God in the gospel. Going all the way back to chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, Peter said this, Proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Well, how does that proclamation happen? Well, certainly that proclamation happens as we speak, as we tell people the gospel, as we saw in chapter 3, you give a defense of the things that the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Certainly that is a way for us to, to convey and proclaim the glories of God. But as we've walked through chapter 2, verse 13, to the end of chapter 3, we've seen the confirmation of the work of God in your life. The, the vivid display of Christ on the cross comes through, through your conduct. It comes through your life as people see, first of all, your submission. They see your willingness to suffer in the midst of injustice. And this morning, as we see, your willingness to, to be sanctified or set apart this growing holiness and purity that begins to take shape in your life. And there are five ways we're going to see this morning that, that the sanctifying work of God can happen. Five ways that you can begin to, to press in to make vivid the gospel through your conduct, through your life, through the, the purifying work of God, the Holy Spirit in your life. 
We see the first one in verse 1. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. First point is, know your captain. Know your captain. And I, I'm using military words here this morning because uh, this, this main command that's gonna, it's gonna address the rest of these, these uh, commands, supporting commands throughout the rest of these verses. This first command, arm yourself, is a military word. Equip yourself, prepare yourself, ready yourself. And so we're just gonna put all of this message this morning into those terms, into military terms. Know your captain, or you could say, know Christ. Know Christ, who is your head, who is your captain. This word, therefore, as we have been seeing throughout our study, and, and I, I want you to understand that the reason why we have been working through the book this way is because you not, not, not only know what the words mean, what the verses mean, but that you can do this for yourself. So as soon as you see this word, therefore, you should, you should think, aha, here's a hinge word. Here's a word that, that makes me need to look out to, to the rest of the, what's come before because he's going to make a statement here that is going to be reaffirmed by what has come before it. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh. Know your captain. Maybe you might say, here we go again. We've been looking at Christ's suffering all along. Are we going to talk about Christ's suffering again? Peter, what is the deal? Can you find a new point? Especially in chapter 3, verse 18, this immediate context, he says, Christ suffered once for sins. This is an aorist indicative, which means it is a a one-time kind of action that happened in the past, But this morning, our word, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, is actually an aorist active participle. It doesn't just point to the one-time action, the one-time event, the once-for-all suffering of Christ on the cross. That is true, but there's something more about the suffering that Peter wants to draw out this morning for us. Not not the one-time suffering, but this perpetual suffering, this perpetual offering, this perpetual victory that Jesus had over sin, over his flesh, over death. The effects of sin and death in his life. And it culminated, of course, in his death on the cross, but this progressing part of life where Jesus, at every moment, submitted and crucified his flesh, so that he could live to the Spirit. He could have victory and conquer sin. So that we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted, tried, tested, as we are yet without sin. At every point in Christ's life, he endured temptation and yet was victorious. And Peter's point here this morning is that he was victorious through suffering. One commentator says the cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate proof that suffering can lead to victory over the forces of of evil. And as a matter of fact, what I I would say to, to strengthen that statement is If you want this morning to experience victory in the Christian life, you must be willing to suffer. You must, like Christ, 
embrace suffering for the sake of victory because suffering is the pathway, it's the road, it's the means by which you experience the victory over sin that Christ modeled. That's what Peter wants us to know. Victory over sin happens through the pathway of suffering. Paul strengthens this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, when he says that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. So you can't experience the power of resurrection life. You can't experience newness of life until you've experienced death. Death to sin, death to the desires of your body and the cravings that you have inside, those natural tendencies that drive you away from God unless you put those to death and know Christ in such a way, know your captain and the strategy that he has to conquer sin, unless you know that, you'll never experience victory because victory only happens one way. It only happens as you embrace suffering for the sake of Jesus. You have to know your captain. Second, we need to equip our thinking. You might say, arm your thinking. That's the word that's used here in our translation. You might say, prepare your thinking. That's what the word that Peter used at the very beginning of the book in chapter one, verse 13, when he says, prepare your minds for action. This word, to arm yourself, is in the middle voice, which means that it, it stresses and magnifies your personal responsibility because no one can prepare you for battle. You must prepare yourself. The term arm yourself has a military connotation. In, in other texts, the Christian life is compared to the life like a warrior. You are going to war. You are in a battle. We talked about anti-soul forces uh, several weeks ago. There are anti-soul forces that are coming against you. And, and while you might think that you need to arm yourself, prepare yourself for external forces to combat the adversary that is coming against you, Peter goes a little deeper and wants you to understand that the battle that you are fighting, the battleground is the battleground of your heart. It's the battleground of your thinking. It begins in your mind. It begins with your attitude. This is what the word thinking means, a way of thinking, an attitude, an, an intention. How you condition your heart, how you think about the things of this life, the desires and affections that you have, the purposes that you have, the motivations that you have. If they're not aligned to the things of God, then you're gonna be out of step with his will. You're going to follow the desires of your flesh rather than following the desires of the spirit. I think James, James says it best when describing our battle with sin in James chapter one, verses 13 to 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. You are your own worst enemy. Then, desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin. Sin what is full grown brings forth death. You don't wake up one moment and find yourself really intermingled with some gross immorality or sin 
that hasn't had its predecessors. The, the thinking that has lured you away, that enticed your mind, has drawn you away. You've, you've made little compromises in, oh, that's not so bad. Uh, it's okay if I go to this website. It's okay if I look. No one will know, and I can just ask for forgiveness, and I'll be okay tomorrow. It's not hurting anybody. But thoughts give birth to sin. Sin ultimately leads to death. I love how John Owen puts it. He says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There will be a death that will happen. It will be either a death of your spiritual life or it will be uh, that you will kill the desires of your heart and live for God. And what you do will confirm where you belong. Because the spirit who is in you will help you to do what he wants you to do. He will lead you to righteousness. The seed that is in you will lead you to holiness. Be holy because I'm holy. That's what Peter says in chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. It happens not because you hunker down and make it happen. It happens because the spirit in you is causing it to take place. And sin will either be killing you or you will be killing sin. That's what leads us now to our third point. Know your captain, equip your thinking, your desires, and kill your flesh. Kill your flesh. It says, arm yourself with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, over the last couple of weeks now, we keep hitting these little bumpy spots in our uh, interpretation, okay? So we hit another couple of bumpy spots this morning, and I can't say that I have all the answers, but I think as we look into the scripture, we can kind of decipher what the meaning really is. There are three possible alternatives, or actually four alternatives here. Maybe there are others, but uh, these are the, the four that, that uh, I'm going to share with you this morning. What does it mean that those who have suffered in the flesh have ceased from sin? Well, the first option is that we're talking about sinless perfection, that you somehow can arrive at sinlessness this side of heaven. Now, anyone believe that to be true? Anyone looking at your life say, I've arrived? I don't think so. So that's off the table. We can't meet the demands of God's law this side of heaven. That's why we find in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where uh, Paul, the apostle Paul says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus. You're not going to get there this side of heaven. It's not going to happen until Christ comes. The second option is it's talking about positional righteousness. That because you are in Christ, because his righteousness has been placed on you, because of what we find in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's an option. And that is true, that we are positionally righteous because of the death of Christ, the work of Christ. But as we work our way through the rest of these verses, we find out it's not just a positional righteousness, righteousness. It's not just a theoretical righteousness. It's an actual righteousness that we're going to see as we move our way through this passage. The third option is it's talking about 
that when we die, we are finally sanctified, finally and fully sanctified. Well, that is true as well. When we die, we know that we're gonna be like him for we will see him as he is. First John chapter two, I think it's uh, verse two or three, something like that. Maybe it's chapter three, chapter three, verse two and three. So that's gonna happen eventually, but that, again, doesn't happen this side of heaven. And because Peter is talking about real conduct in and in, in, uh, real Gentiles being really surprised that you don't act like them, he must be speaking about something that's happening here in this time and space. He's talking about something that's happening for you personally in terms of suffering in the flesh and thus ceasing from sin. So what in the world is he after? Well, the, the word flesh means that which is physical. It means your body. It means, it's often contrasted in the Gospels with the Spirit. Jesus, in speaking to the disciples when they couldn't stay up and pray with him in the garden, says, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It points to weakness. It points to their physicality, their, their inability to do what they really want to do. But it's not also always associated with evil because this same word sarks or flesh is used of Christ in John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we know that Jesus in becoming flesh did not become sin until God made him sin for us. He took the punishment and penalty of sin. Up until that point, he was the righteous who died for the unrighteous so that he might bring us to God. So just because Jesus had flesh did not mean that Jesus had sin. So flesh and sin don't equate. What's it talking about here? Well, it's talking about the the natural desires of the body, the natural desires of the flesh. And somehow, as we submit ourselves to the same strategy of Christ in suffering for sin, we'll also be able to cease from sin. This word ceased is a perfect passive which means it's referring to an action that happened way back somewhere and that point of conversion is the the time in which newness of life began for us and like a rock that makes ripples in a pond, the, the results of that initial work leads to greater works in us. And somehow that work of Christ dying on the cross has allowed us to also experience in some way this sanctifying work of ceasing from sin. So let me press into the, to the real meaning. What, what is this talking about? Romans chapter eight, verse six, gives us some answers. And a couple of summers ago, we, we worked our way through Romans chapter eight. It says this, for to set the mind on the flesh, that's our word, is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who operate in a way that they are succumbing to their fleshly instincts, their fleshly nature, their fleshly desires, are gonna continue to succumb to the sin. There's a key, the key is being able to operate in a way that the spirit is able to have full control. So how do we do do that? What's the answer? Well, the answer comes in verses nine to 13. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, 
Anyone who does not have the spirit of, of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The answer is this putting off and putting on. Putting to death the desires of the flesh, putting to death the, 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 the satisfactions and the cravings that you have in your innermost being and putting them off and replacing them with the desires of God. Letting the Spirit have His way in your life. Living by the Spirit. Letting the Spirit have His way in your life by, by working out the fruits of the Spirit as we see in Galatians chapter five. Walk in the Spirit. You will not fulfill the, the lust of the flesh. Let me give you some practical ways in, in how to do this for yourself. And there are many more than three, but I'm just gonna give you three ways you can begin to, to put off the deeds of the flesh and put on the spirit and begin to experience this life of ceasing from sin. Every time you decide, I'm gonna kill this desire and I'm gonna live to God, you are following through on ceasing from sin and, and allowing the life of the spirit to have his way in you. The first way you can do this is by saturating your life in the word of God. Saturate your life with the word. Peter says as much in chapter two, verse two. He says, like newborn babes or infants, long for the pure spiritual milk of the word, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Substitute, replace the cravings that you have of the flesh with cravings that you have for the word of God. Learn to long and crave and yearn and desire the word of God, the relationship that you have with God through the knowledge from his word. I love how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 119, nine to 11. He says, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart, I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Love the word, yearn for the word. Seek to make the word the a part of the fabric of your life, a part of the routine of your every day. Cultivate that longing. I can't wait to get up to know God through the word again today. That'll be the first step for you in terms of overcoming sin in your life. Second, pray for spiritual strength. Do you know that the spirit delights in giving you strength to overcome sin? Do you know that you can have power of God to overcome, be strong in the Lord, in the power of his might? God delights in giving you power. Paul prays for power for this church in Ephesians chapter three, verse 14 and 16. He says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that according to the riches of, the, of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That word for power is the word dunamai. It's the word dynamite. It's this explosive power to blow up sin in your life. Let the Holy Spirit have his way and obliterate and destroy the sin in your life as you yield to the Spirit's power. Third, flee youthful lusts. 
and pursue righteousness, pursue godliness. Flee youthful lusts and pursue godliness. We find that in 2 Timothy 2, where it says, flee youthful passions. That's our word that we're gonna see in the next few verses. It's the word epiphemia. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So many things in this uh, little verse kind of packed in, packaged for us. If you want to overcome sin in your life, learn to run. Don't stand up. Don't tiptoe close to it. Don't see how close can I get to this sin before it can have its way in my life. Learn to run from it. Learn to avoid it. Avoid bad company. It says corrupts good habits. Stay away from the people who would, who would trip you up and get you to sin. Stay away from those places that are gonna cause you to sin. Stay away from those times in, in private where there's temptation. Do things in the open. Do things in public so that you have some accountability. Learn to run from sin. Flee youthful passions. And what I love about the scripture is there's, there's always this putting off and putting on. It's, uh, it's difficult just to avoid bad things. It's easier to avoid bad things by adopting good habits. Pursue the things that are pure. If you're busy serving others, if you're busy doing what God has called you to do, you're not gonna have time or even think about the sin temptations that, that may be in your way. Learn to flee youthful passions by pursuing, running after the things that are, that are good and healthy. And I love this last part of this phrase, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Do it with a group. Pursue righteousness with others. Be in good community, fellowship with God's people. As you do that, as you're in good company, God will help you to make good decisions and to avoid sin in your life. And then you will be ceasing from sin as you kill the flesh. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. These last two points we find in verses two to verse six. Uh, we find this next point uh, in verse two particularly. It says, so as to live for the rest of your time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. As we think about the will of God, I, I want you to understand that you need to follow your mission. Not only know your captain, equip your thinking, kill the flesh, but follow your mission. Know the will of God. It has been inescapable as we've walked through chapter two, verse 13, to the end of chapter three, and here we are again. The, the, the will of God has been front and center, time and time and time again. We saw it in chapter two, verse 15, submit to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. This is the will of God. Chapter two, verse 21, servants, be submissive to your masters, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh, for to this you were called. In chapter three, verse nine, don't return evil for evil or reviling for reviling, to this you were called. In chapter three, verse 17, if you suffer according to the will of God, you're blessed. And here in chapter four, verse two, we're gonna see it again in chapter four, verse 19, those who suffer according to the will of God should commit their souls to him by doing good. If you're wondering what God's will is for your life, make sure your, your heart 
your life is aligned to the explicit, clear will of God, the things that he has stated emphatically in his word, and then you can begin to understand the will of God for the other parts of your life. But if you avoid and ignore the clear teaching of the Spirit, his will for your life in the black and white parts of the Bible, you can't hope that the Spirit will speak to you on the other parts. And here, the Scripture is clear. Peter, speaking through the power of the Holy Spirit, says, don't live according to human passions, but according to the will of God. This word passions is the word epithemia, it's the word for lusts. It's a word for desires. It's a word for cravings. It's a word that speaks about our natural affections. And in, and in verse 3, those natural affections have, have borne out in all manner of ungodliness. It says, for that time, excuse me, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Why does he point, why does Peter point to such flagrant, open, public, terrible sins? Well, he does this because this would have been ingrained in the culture of the day. That because of paganism and because of idolatry, the worship of other gods, it was built into the fabric of society. Wherever you would go in the first century in the known world, the Roman world, hardwired into their psyche, hardwired into their culture was this sensual, this sexualized, drunken kind of worship to other gods. And to not be part of that, to not be part of the community in that way would be to set yourself outside of the community and open yourselves up for what we see in verse four, they will malign you. They will revile you. They will insult you. They will slander you, as we've seen already time and time again throughout this book. We might say, well, I'm okay. I don't do those things. I'm not that bad. I'm a pretty good Christian. I, uh, I do... Some, some sins here and there, but they're little sins compared to those big sins. And I want to just briefly, for the sake of time, point you to the underlying heart, the underlying thinking intent that leads to those bigger things that I think is present in each one of us here today. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and 21, we find the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now we're going to be talking about some big sins, right? Because these are, this is a big deal. The wrath of God is coming upon really unrighteous, ungodly kind of people who suppress the truth. So what is the big sin? Although they knew God, they did not honor him, meaning they didn't worship him. They didn't worship him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Underlying every big sin is a defect in faith and a defect in thankfulness. What leads people to adultery is a lack of faith for God's plan in marriage 
and a lack of satisfaction in the way that God intended to meet those sexual desires that we have. And a desire to, to fulfill those, those cravings in, in every way other than what God has called us to do in his word. A lack of faith, a lack of thankfulness. What leads people to substance abuse? We see that, you know, drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties from our passage. Well, it's a lack of faith in God to ease the pain or to provide us with the friends we think we can only get one way by being with them and drinking with them, hanging out with them, doing their kind of things. Lack of faith and also lack of thankfulness. That I either need to drown out my pain because God is unable to meet me where life is hard, or I want to amplify my pleasure. One of those two possibilities and probably several others along the way. It is at the heart a lack of faith and a lack of thankfulness. And when we find or when we strive to get the things we want the way we want them without waiting for God, we are committing idolatry. We make ourselves God. We say, they don't care about my needs. They aren't listening to my problems. They don't recognize my gifts. They don't affirm my value. They don't listen to my opinions. They don't follow my advice. Whenever we do that, we put ourselves in the center instead of putting God in the center. That's idolatry. And that's exactly what is happening here. Peter, in trying to warn this group of individuals, don't be part of the patterns of their life. Don't commit idolatry. With them, trust God and be thankful. We find in verse 4 that they're surprised when you don't participate with them. That's what you can expect. They will malign you. We've seen this a number of times already through this letter. We can expect that when we follow after God, we're going to receive the, the opposition, the kickback from the world that doesn't understand. Maybe they feel a little judged by your behavior because they see your life and they know in their heart, they feel convicted in their heart that what they're doing is wrong. So they have to paint you in the worst possible light so they can justify their sin. They will malign you. Don't be surprised and don't be concerned. Why? Our final point, trust the outcome. Trust the outcome we see in verses five and six. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Trust God. God is sovereign. The final word is not the word here. The final word is the word in heaven. The final word or the final judge is not the judge of the courts, the law courts here, or the opinions of the people who are evaluating your life here. The opinion that matters, the judge that stands at the door is the judge of the living and the dead, and he's there in heaven and he will have his way. God will judge the living and the dead. But the ultimate outcome, of course, is what we see in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. That while we are experiencing suffering, while we are spoken of in evil terms, the desire of our heart is that the gospel picture accompanied by gospel words will lead to life in the people who have judged you here, who have maligned you here. Look, 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable 
so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's our hope. That's our longing. That even when we experience suffering, we desire for the suffering we experience to, to lead to the same kind of healing that you and I had, ex- had experienced. Christ, it says, that by his stripes you were healed. And by extension, when you're willing to experience the same kind of suffering, God may use your suffering to lead to the same kind of healing in others. Are you willing to be that kind of conduit for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the glory of God? This last phrase in verse six, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though they, excuse me, that though judged in the flesh the way that people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, who in the world are these people? Well, I appreciate uh, the interpretive translation for, from the NIV. It says this, for this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. I think that helps, and I think that brings out the meaning. These are people who have died in the flesh, people who have been judged in the flesh, people who have been maligned and spoken of as evil, but now it says they're living to God. Okay? Died in the flesh, living to God. Who are these people? I believe these are people who were once alive, heard the word, it was preached to them, they responded to the word, they received the word of God in their hearts, they became believers, now they're dead. They've been judged by human courts. They've been judged by human opinion. They've been called all manner of names, they've been ostracized from community, they've been judged in a way that has set them on the outside, but the judgment of this life is not the final word. And so now they're experiencing the joy of life with God in heaven because his word is final. His word is the only one that matters. And now, having enjoyed the fellowship of the gospel, now they're experiencing real fellowship with God personally in heaven. Does that make sense? As we decide and determine in our minds, as you equip your minds, prepare your minds to suffer, to put to death sin day by day, to shine the gospel through your life. You embrace hard things. You submit to authority. You you endure suffering unjustly. The unjust suffering, you endure it for the sake of the picture, the beautiful picture of the gospel. And through your life, God may draw people to come into fellowship with him, into faith, so they will glorify God one day on the day of visitation. What a joy that will be. May God help us to live that way. Let me pray. Lord, we understand the significance of this testimony, this growing life of sanctification that must be true of us. God, I pray that as we put to death the flesh and live according to the Spirit, we would experience day by day, a growing sense of ceasing from sin. And and while this side of glory will never be perfect, but we understand the majesty and glory of Christ can show with greater color, greater vibrance, greater radiance from our life as we continue 
to allow you to have your way in us. May that be true. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. God bless you this week.